when I wasn't up for preaching right the day after the accident, Scotty just jumped in and preached an amazing sermon. That pushed our series back a week, which is fine, but I had already asked Derek to preach on Exodus 33, and I didn't want to rob the congregation. Even though I'm here, I didn't want to rob the congregation of that privilege. So Derek's going to bring the word today. So Derek, come and bring God's word to us from Exodus 33. Well, we'll be reading from, surprise, Exodus 33. Um, So if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, I'll be using the ESV translation. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If even for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at the door of his tent and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, Look, You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I might know you, in order that I might find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I am 
nothing more than a man made from the dust, and my words are feeble, and my thoughts are weak. And so, O Lord, I sense that I and we are on holy ground, and so I ask you, Lord, to be patient with us and me. And Lord, would you help me to explain this great passage? I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Midway in our life's journey, I went astray from the straight road and woke to find myself alone in a dark wood. How shall I say what wood that was? I never saw so drear, so rank, so arduous a wilderness. Its very memory gives a shape to fear. Death could scarce be more bitter than that place. Those are not my words. Those are the words of a medieval epic poet by the name of Dante Alighieri. This is from the opening of his famous Inferno. You've probably heard of Dante's Inferno. It's a three-part epic, right, where he goes through hell and then he climbs up the mountain of purgatory and eventually sees the glories of paradise in the book Paradiso. But this is very fitting for where we begin our passage today. In the middle of Israel's journey at Mount Sinai, on the way to the promised land, midway through her life, she goes astray. And we talked about that last week. She makes a golden calf and says, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And this going astray is a serious sin. We sense that from the text, right? The prophets who would later come in Israel actually connected Sinai to a marriage. That's the analogy that they used for it. God was taking Israel to be his bride. And so we sense that this wasn't just any sin. This is one of those ones that really, really, really hurts It's an intimate betrayal on the day of the wedding. This is how we begin our passage. So it's important to keep that context in mind because our verse actually begins with a bit of pain. Our chapter has pain in it all throughout it, but there's hope. And it's important to step back a little bit right now, especially with this chapter, and look at those, actually the structure of the book of Exodus at this point. I don't usually step back and talk about literary structure, but we're in a very important chapter in this section about the tabernacle. Chapters 19 to 24 were the establishing of the covenant. 19 to 24, that's where God ate with them, he drank with them, he said, keep the commandments. They said, I do, I do, I do, right? That was the bride saying, I do, I want you. Right? And they agreed, and they came into this covenant. And in chapter 25, that's where we begin. For the rest of the book of, of Exodus, guess what we're talking about? The tabernacle. So from chapters 25 to 31 is the instructions that, Mount, that Moses gets on Mount Sinai. 32 to 34 is in the middle, right? The golden calf, the sin, breaks the narrative, and it's in the middle. And chapters 35 to 40 are the actual construction of the tabernacle and where God finally comes and dwells and rests with his people. So why is this whole thing interrupted by these three chapters? And chapter 33 is right in the middle of those chapters. We are in the center of the center of the section in Exodus about God making an attempt to dwell among his people. So we're in the hinge of this whole thing turning on Israel's sin, and there's an ambiguity to it. What is the Lord going to do? What is Israel going to do? What is her destiny? And so in verse 1 to 3, <laughs> he says it much better than I do, honestly. <laughs> it's that deep, rumbling voice. Um, verse 1 to 3 is the Lord's 
resolution, right? The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. And here's where we have both improvement from chapter 32, and we still have tension and darkness and sadness, though, right? We've improved a little bit. Uh, In 32, the Lord was like, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to blow the people up, and I'll start over with you like Noah. And Moses said, no, Lord, don't do that. You know, if 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 I have to, blot me out. Lord says, I'm not going to blot you out of my book. I'll punish those who sinned, and I'm going to send my angel, right? But look how, look how his language changes. You and the people, not my people, not even the people of Israel, the people. You and the people whom you have brought out. In Exodus 33, God had this kind of confidence about his language, right? He was like, I'm going to rescue the people of Israel, and I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. But now it's the people whom you have brought out. But here's, here's some of that good that's coming in, right? He's not going to destroy them. He's going to keep his promise. Because of Abraham, because of Isaac, because of Jacob, I promise them. And Moses, I agree with you. I'm not going back because I promise them. I'll bring you into the land. But there's this tension, right? Because what does God say? I will not go up. I won't go up. And there's this ambiguity now about the angel. It's not the angel. It's not my angel. It's an angel. An angel. I'll send an angel for you. Who is this angel? Is it God? Is it someone who's going to judge them? Is it someone who's going to save them? Is it someone who's going to be dangerous? Is he going to be kind, compassionate? What is he sent for? What is his mission? Israel doesn't know. So in verses 4 to 6, we get the people's response. When they heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Right? They understood that without God's presence... They were nothing more than any other nation. No different, just a people made from the dust. Nothing set them apart. Nothing was significant about them. And so they understood that. And so they properly, they, they actually respond right, right? They mourn and they refuse to put on their ornaments. And three times, both in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6, it seems like a main player that gets repeated. Their ornaments, their ornaments, their ornaments. They didn't put them on. God says, take them off. And then six, they stripped themselves of these ornaments. What is going on with these ornaments? Well, if we keep with that analogy that the prophets of Israel themselves use this marriage, what does a bride do on the wedding day? She adorns herself. She makes herself beautiful for her husband, right? And he's drawn after her beauty in the most wonderful way, the most appropriate way. But now it's, they didn't even put them on. And they strip themselves of these ornaments. And he repeats his earlier negative statement to Moses, right? Before he said, I will not go up lest I consume you. Now when the report actually goes to the people, it's in the positive. If I did go up, I would consume you. And it's interesting what happens when you line these statements up together. They create quite the literary little speech from God, and let me read it to you. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. That's what happens when you put God's statements together in the negative and the positive. He's making it clear, I'm not going. I'm not. Notice the themes going, ascending, the way, they're on the way to the land. This is a rescue mission on the way to a destination, and Israel's unfaithfulness, her betrayal has put this all in jeopardy. And notice what God says with all this play on words. God says, go up, Moses. I will not go up. Israel, take down your ornaments. 
These are tragic echoes of a severely, severely broken relationship where God looks at Israel and says, take those off. Take off your beauty. I don't want to see it. Right? That's what we're dealing with here. In a human perspective, it's, I'm not sure I want you back. Right? If we can speak, if we can dare to speak with human language about God, I don't, I'm not sure I want you to take you back. I'm in the heat of my anger. Give me some space and let me think about this for a minute. And we can relate to that, can't we? And even if we've never committed adultery in our mind or in our hearts, we've done it. We have done it. We've been unfaithful in our minds, in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our words to the people that we love the most. I'm not sure if I want to be with you right now. Right? And so this is the, this is the extent to which we have come. And so now we come to verses 7 to 11. This, and it seems like an interruption here. It seems like the narrative is kind of being interrupted. Moses is talking with the people and with God. And all of this, all of a sudden, now Moses used to take a tent. It's like, what? Seems kind of like an interruption, but here's, what's, here's why I told you before about the structure, right? We have the tabernacle instructed, the, sta- the tabernacle constructed, and then we have that interrupted by the center, 32 to 34. And then we have the center where we're at, chapter 33, and si- verses 7 to 11 are the center of the center of the center of this whole section. And so we, we need to pay close attention that we're in the middle. We're in the middle of the middle of the middle of this, this literary structure. And the author is going to be telling us, pay attention. You're in the middle. And so what's going on here with this tent, right? It says that he used to take it outside the camp, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out there. They'd rise up. They'd worship. God would visit it with the pillar of the cloud. But notice this, number one, this is still proof of a very ruptured relationship. Notice the words that get repeated here, outside. It's outside the camp. I'm not going with you, Israel. I'm not going to live with you, right? You said I do, and then on the wedding day you betrayed me, and, and the plans to, to rent the apartment, to, to put, the, put the pictures up in the house, not happening. I'm not going with you. I'm not going to live with you. Outside, far off outside verse 7 so still the sadness of this ruptured relationship but here's where we have hope here and i think it's why it's the middle of the middle of the middle because there's this great hope that we see what's the what's the core of that hope moses's relationship with the lord moses meets with the lord outside the camp and he speaks with them face to face as a man speaks with his friends. And so Israel is hanging on Moses' intercession. They're, he's, they're watching him go out to the tent. They're watching the pillar in the fire. They're watching. They're waiting. What's going to happen? Is he going to take us back? Are we going to be okay? Are we still going to be together? Is he going to live with us? How are we going to come back from this? And if you're here today, think about those times in your life when you've just really, really, really messed up. I've been there. I've really messed up and I've really hurt the people I love the most, right? And you're hanging on every picture of grace. Can God still be gracious to me? Can he still be kind to me? Can I come back? Can we live together still even after that, right? And that's what the people are doing. They're standing at their tents and they're watching. Their eyes are fixed on Moses and they're watching the presence of God. They're falling down on their face and they're worshiping the Lord, but they're doing at a distance, But there's hope here because there's seekers of the Lord. Those who sought the Lord would even go out to the tent. And it looks like they had special permissions to approach. 
But the, there's no sacrifices. This is not the tabernacle. Notice this is a, a makeshift tent that Moses has set up to talk with the Lord. It's not the tabernacle. There's no priests. There's no sacrifices. The tabernacle has been scrapped for now. God is like, I'm, no, we're not building it, right? And it isn't clear why we're told that Joshua stays behind. But, and I, I really couldn't find a lot on this, but I, I thought this could be the case. I'm not telling you it is the case, so don't, don't hook me on this. But Joshua is said to never depart from the midst of the tent. And if that's the case, then this may be a subtle uh, addition of sadness, right? Because Joshua is a military man. We've learned that he fought against Amalek earlier in Exodus. He's a man with a sword on his side. He's maybe, maybe that he's acting as kind of a proto-Levitical priest. See, when Moses step away, he doesn't leave the tent without a guard. And it may be a subtle allusion to the Garden of Eden when the man and the woman are driven out from the Lord's presence and he places a cherubim and says, there's no way to the tree of life for now. And so that's the center. There's still tension. He's far off. He's outside, but there's hope. They're hanging on Moses' intercession. If Moses doesn't succeed, Yahweh won't come back. And they're hanging on that every word. So Moses then, we jump back into his intercession for the people, verses 12 to 16. Moses said to the Lord, look. He tells the Lord to look. Open your eyes. Look. See. You say to me, bring this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Basically, you're being too ambiguous about this angel guy. I want, to, <laughs> I want details. You've got to tell me what's going on. What's the plan? Are we still going to make this thing work? Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. This is favor in the ESV, but grace, favor, kindnesses, that's the idea. Now, therefore, if I have found grace in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find grace in your sight. And this is why we can't do that simple, simple thing of saying, that's the law, this is the gospel, because here in the law, in the Torah, we have a picture of the gospel. Isn't this, isn't this the program of the gospel? Isn't this what we still say as Christians? If I have found grace in your sight, show me your ways again. Where are you going, Lord? What's the road? So that I might know you, so I can get more grace. Right? And this grace isn't stuff we just put in our pocket and it's like, oh man, like a battery on our phone. I'm almost out of grace. I need more. That's not what it is. It's knowing the Lord. Grace is re being related to the Lord. And we can be less or more related to him depending on how we live and act in the world. doesn't mean he's going to cast us out eternally, but it means that we have a relationship with the Lord. So Moses is, he's speaking the gospel. He's, he's the gospel's falling off his lips. And he says, look, at the end of 13, he says, look, consider that this nation and here's where Moses is going to seal the deal. This is your people. He's holding the Lord to that. It's not the people. It's not my people. It's your people, Lord. And, and I, you know, there's a, actually a more strong way to put this. ESV says consider too, and that's a good way. But I would say look because this is your people. You can translate it because I'm telling you to look, pay attention, open your eyes because it's not my people. You did this, Lord. <laughs> you started this. Right? You talked to Abraham. You, you'd said you're going to rescue us, right? And he said, okay, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's right, Connie. It is singular, and there's a way in Hebrew to make it plural. God could have said, all right, I'll go with you all. There's a way to do that in Hebrew. That's not how it shows up. I'll go with you, singular, Moses. I'll go with you, and I'll give you rest. Don't worry. We'll, we'll be okay. But look what Moses is not satisfied with that. 
And he said to him, if your presence will not go, and here's where I love the ESV. Just don't get me wrong. It's my favorite English Bible in the world. But there is no with me. With me is, is not present. It's not in the text. It's an interpretation here. So follow with me. Moses knows what the Lord said. He said, I will go with you. It's not about Moses isn't concerned with himself. He says, if your presence will not be going, do not bring us up from here. Moses' comeback for the Lord is, no, I'm not satisfied. I don't want to be another Noah. I don't want to be another Lot. I don't want to be those stories. I want to be a bigger story than that. I want you to save everyone. I want you to save this whole nation. So if you're not going to do that, don't even bring us up. And look how bold Moses is. We're supposed to pray this way. We are supposed to pray like this. And if you're thinking, oh, man, I wonder if I was Moses, keep thinking like that. Because that's what, how you're supposed to read these texts. What if I was Moses? How could I pray like that? For how shall it be known, in verse 16, how shall it be known that I found grace in your sight? I, and again, your people for the second time. If it is not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of this earth. Your people, your people, your people, us, us, we. Moses is only concerned with himself in as far as his proximity to the Lord will prove the salvation of Israel. And so he says, no, Lord, not another Noah, not just eight people, not another Abraham, not a new destruction project, not another cosmic flood, not another Sodom and Gomorrah. Please, Lord, save the whole nation. And, and so the people were right, right earlier. This thing that we've heard about the Lord saying, I won't go, this is an evil thing. That's what it is in Hebrew. Ra'ah, it's evil. We don't like the way that sounds. And they were right because if he doesn't go with them, they'll be nobody. So they'll be like anybody else. It's the Lord that makes them unique. So in verses 17 to 23, the Lord responds favorably. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. This is amazing. The Lord was actually about to go. He was you singular, you singular. He was about to say, remember that other plan, Moses? About, you know, I can make a good nation out of you. There's like a, he's like coming back to that. And Moses is like, no, <laughs> stop it, Lord. No, we're not doing that. And you know what's cool? The Lord says, okay, Yeah. Yeah, I'll do it. I like what you're saying. And let's think about, we have to use this human language. Let's, let's think about it. who chose Moses. Who chose Moses? Moses, I want you to go down into Israel and get my people. No, Lord, I can't do it. Yep, it's got to be you. It's got to be you, Moses. Because what did the Lord know? He, know he, he created Moses the way he was. And he said, I know one day you're going to fight back. You're going to wrestle with me like Jacob. And you're going to say, I won't let you go until you bless not just me, until you bless this whole people, because they're Jacob, they're Israel. Israel is Jacob, Jacob is Israel, and Israel is his offspring, right? And so he says this, in verse 18, Moses said, and here's the fitting response, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness. Isn't the Lord good? <laughs> all of his goodness. What does that even mean? It's wonderful. All of his goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. There is a word for gracious. It means like a king who extends kindnesses and privileges where they're not necessarily earned or deserved. And then this word for mercy is the same word in Hebrew for the womb. There's a noun. It's the same as the verb, and it's for the womb, rechem. And it's the womb of a woman. 
just like a woman would be compassionate over her own life that's within her, right? Her own baby. So I'm going to be merciful to whom I will be merciful, right? God has no obligation to take the betraying wife back, right? He, and, and vice versa, right? These are just analogies, right? Just like if it was the other way around. But the, the image is as a husband to his bride. He has no obligation. And we, we need to put ourselves in the right mode for these texts. So often we think in kind of, and it's getting more popular to kind of think in these kind of victim mentalities. Like the people that have wronged others are actually the victims in certain cases. It's really, it's really quite odd. But when it comes to the Lord, he's only holy. He's only ever done what's good and righteous and kind to Israel. He has no obligation to take her back. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And merciful to him, I'll be merciful. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the, the logic person in me just gets bent out of shape about this because I think earlier he spoke to him face to face. Moses spoke to him face to face, and the Lord says, nobody sees my face, you'll die. I mean... I've tried. It won't. He, no one Hebrew doesn't fix it. You know, in seminary fixed it. Thirty-four years of prayers doesn't fix this. I mean, we are at the limit, absolute limit of human language when we're talking about the Creator here. We are on holy ground. Let's not be ashamed when people make fun of us. You Christian and all your contradictory mysteries. If you were, if you were smart like me, you'd just give that stuff up. Let's be reverent. Let's be patient. Let's wait. Let's be still. We are on holy ground. We're talking about things that our brains can't even, can't even press into. Right? So I don't really know what this means. I just means, I know it means he's close to the Lord, and the Lord is so big that you can't, it's, he's unexhaustible. Right? But he both, he's both seen and unseen. I, that's all I can say. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I don't, I don't know. But it's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> I wouldn't want anything else to be true. Verses 21 to 23, this is where it gets interesting. God protects Moses from, from God. Kind of weird, huh? There's the gospel again. We have these strange statements in the New Testament, like, be delivered from the wrath to come. Whose wrath? Yahweh's. Wait, wait a minute. So Yahweh saves us from Yahweh's wrath? Yeah, there you go. We're on holy ground again. I mean, everywhere you turn, you just step into these weird statements where if you try to fit them into your brain, it's just like, What? But yeah, God protects Moses from God. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. And that's true for everyone here today. There's a place by the Lord God Almighty, a place right by him. And he says, stand here. There's a place by me you can stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and I'll cover you with my hand, right? And he does this. He kind of walks by with his hand covered. And then just at the last moment, he takes his hand up and Moses gets a split second of seeing the backside of the Lord. And you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Here's this revelation, and it's almost like I don't even know what to say about it besides the, Moses sees the glory of the Lord. And, but let's think back through all these themes as we round everything up, right? Go up to the land that I promised to Abraham. They're not a people without a land, and they're not a people without a king over that land. And if any of those pieces are gone... If they're just in the wilderness with Yahweh, they don't have a land. They're not a people. And if they're in the land without a king, then they have a land and they're a people, but they're no different than anyone else. So they're not unique, 
right? All of, we need all of these things. Israel's betrayal and repentance. Moses' righteous intercession invites the worship and praise of Israel. Moses' favor with the Lord becomes the salvation of God's people. God is good, gracious, and compassionate. Those who know him will find favor, and those who find favor will know him, and he will show them his glory. But there's so much ambiguity here, and the, and the, the sort of revelation of God is so almost fuzzy, we're almost left going, who is this God anyway? I thought the Exodus was going to clarify this, right? And then we get, into, we get to the top of the mountain with Moses, and we're still just like, huh? Who, who are we dealing with here? What kind of a being? What kind of a God? Is this majestic, this glorious, right? Who is he? The one who hides his face and threatens Israel but relents and shows mercy. If it starts to remind you of Jesus, <laughs> that's good, right? You're in 2,000 years of holy company where Jude, in your New Testament, says, in fact, that it was Jesus who saved a people out of Egypt. He just goes ahead and says it. That was Jesus. I love Jude for that. The brother of our Lord. I know Jesus. I had lunch with Jesus. I know how he acts. That's Jesus. Right? Jesus occupies the place of the angel, leading his people into the promised land. Jesus occupies the place of Israel as the greater, blameless Jacob, an Israelite. Jesus occupies the place of Joshua, who never leaves the tent of God, right? His name is Jehoshua. In Aramaic, it's Yeshua. In Greek, it's Jesus. And now we say it in English, Jesus. But it's Joshua. He's in Joshua's place quite, quite neatly there in the text. Jesus occupies the place of Moses, certainly, the righteous, interceding one, securing our salvation. And Jesus occupies the place of Yahweh because that's who he is, slow to anger, long-suffering, compassionate, merciful, the one who's made his dwelling among us, and that's exactly what we find in John's gospel, starting in chapter 1, verses 14, just a retelling of Exodus 33. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Moses said, please show me your glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now therefore, if I have found grace in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find grace in your sight, and finally, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. Interesting that Jesus in this text has the place of Moses in the cleft of the Father's heart, in his bosom, right, interceding for us. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, then I will take away my hand. And you shall see my back. My face will not be seen. I have to admit to you that I, I was kind of malicious and planned this ahead of time, and I didn't finish the quote from Dante, from Dante's Inferno. Um, here's the full quote. Midway in our life's journey, I went astray from the straight road and woke to find myself alone in a dark wood. How shall I say what wood that was? I never saw so drear, so rank, so arduous a wilderness. Its very memory gives a shape to fear. Death, death could scarce be more bitter than that place. But since it came to good, I will recount all that I found there revealed by God's grace. Somehow, in the infinite wisdom of God, the occasion of Israel's greatest sin and betrayal became the opportunity for the greatest monument and revelation of the goodness, 
kindness and compassion of his love. And so it is in Jesus Christ. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day. And now forever the mercy of our God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. I'm asking you, if there's even a little part of you that says, I have screwed up so bad, and he might never take me back. He absolutely, strangely, wonderfully, inexplicably, he will. He will do that, but he'll do that in Jesus Christ, our intercessor, our mediator, our brand new, perfect, never fading Moses. That's what he is to us as God's people. So let's pray now together. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your kindnesses and love to us. Lord, how, how could anyone not, eat, not fail at this point in the Bible? But Lord, where I've failed, I'm certain, positive, absolutely sure that you will succeed. This is your people, Lord. This is your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that you would save them all. Save us all. Lord, redeem the world. Win it back for yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.